You're listening to The Profile. Hello and welcome to The Profile podcast. I'm Andy Peck. For the past 17 years, I've been interviewing leaders in the church and the wider culture. In the coming weeks, you'll be hearing the best of these conversations, plus some brand new ones as well. It was leadership expert John Maxwell who famously said, leadership is influence. Some have massive influence through their role as a leader of a church or business, a charity or a family. Others have influence in their neighbourhood, a network of friends or through leisure interests. It's our prayer that these conversations will help you in whatever spheres you have influence. This show is brought to you by Premier Christianity Magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Get full online access and the print magazine every month by becoming a subscriber. See special offers available now at premierchristianity.com. Among the things that Christians can get heated about is the choice of Bible translation, with advocates of the King James Version especially passionate. But you will know that there are many translation options, and most have their merits. There are no less than a hundred translations of the whole Bible, and many more of just the New Testament. Well, I'm joined this week by a man who's just completed a translation of the New Testament and has called it the Second Testament. His name is Scott McKnight. Uh, you may know him from his book of 2004, Jesus Creed, which won the Christianity Today Book Award for Christian Living, uh, one of uh, over 30 books he's now published. He's the uh, professor of New Testament at Northern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Lyle, Illinois, and hosts a highly popular blog also entitled The Jesus Creed, which is much visited by pastors around the world. He also has a popular podcast, Kingdom Roots. So I'm looking forward to chatting with him about what he's learned about leadership through his academic work, training leaders, and why he opted to look to make another translation of the New Testament. So welcome, Scott, to the Leadership Show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andy. Good to be with you. Um, great joy to be chatting with you, having enjoyed you in print and also via your podcast. So uh, so, so thank you. Um, I can't pretend to be able to ask you lots of technical questions about your translation of the New Testament. I can ask you the obvious journalist question, and that is, why another translation? <laughs> well, here's what happened. Um, you may know of a man named N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. Very much he, so, yes. yes. He was exactly. translating the New Testament uh, at the uh, to begin a passage, and he wrote a whole little series of reflections on the New, Test New Testament called the Bible for Everyone. Absolutely, yeah, indeed. At that time, uh, not after it started doing well, they employed or hired or whatever uh contracted with john golden gay to do the old testament indeed yeah so he did the bible for everyone in the old testament but translated the whole thing which is a lot harder than the new testament because it's so much longer so then when it was all said and done tom published his new testament the kingdom new testament uh, john did not publish his separately but what happened is uh, sbck put them together as the bible for everyone so i bought a copy because I had Tom's, and I'd been using it quite a bit. I'd read, I don't think I ever read it cover to cover, but I've read most of it. And uh, then I started reading Golden Gay, and then InterVarsity um, in the United States published John Golden Gay's Old Testament translation separately as the First Testament. And when I, I started reading it, and I've read it now three times, when I was reading it, I thought, this has not, this is, this and Tom Wright's translations 
don't belong together. They're completely ah, okay. different theories. Because Tom's is very fluid and dynamic, and it's, it's clever, you know, like Tom. Hmm. John was doing something different. He transliterated all the Hebrew names, um, made mapping, uh, using the maps, almost impossible. But he also um, followed Hebrew grammar a little bit more so that it, it didn't quite read like an English translation, and he avoided religious jargon or terms that we have theologized. So I really liked it, and I was with the actual the editor at InterVarsity one day at an academic meeting, and we got to talking about this translations, and I said, you know, I said they don't these two don't belong together. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, Golden Gay's approach to translation is so different from Tom's. He says, what do you think we should do about it? I said, well, you need to find someone to translate the New Testament, just like John Golden Gay's First Testament, and he looked at me. He says, would you like to do it? And I said, yes. But I had never thought about it. I had never (laughs) thought about it until then. I thought, okay, I'll do this because I really like it. And I know it's distinct from other translations. It's not an attempt to correct translations. It's an attempt to provide people who are familiar with the Bible a little bit more, let's say, an in-depth, more careful look at the text without so much Englishy interpretation not not that this is interpretation all translations are interpretations in fact there's a famous statement in italian that all translations are are done by traitors so <laughs> that and that's something there's something true about that so um i spent two years uh monday through friday every morning four hours three to four hours sometimes some in the afternoon translating the new testament and going back over it, and then um, InterVarsity was kind enough to take it and publish it, and so it's now out. Wow. Well, I know enough about translations to know that there's word for word and thought for thought on ends of a, the spectrum. Where yeah. would yours fall in that? Yeah. Um, you know, we often call those um, formal and dynamic. Right. Uh, so mine's more formal, more mm-hmm. word for word. Okay. And I, I would say, in many ways, it's more word for word than any translation you can find. Oh, well, okay. Absolutely. In fact, so much so at times you'll say, this is clunky English, and I will say, thank you very much. That's what it. That's, that's what, what I want you to, to do. Feel. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and pastors who, who might use it, how would you hope that your style of translation would influence them in their preaching? Yeah. Um, most pastors are going to be reading the English translations that they're familiar with, the NIV, the Common English Bible, whatever they use, you know, uh, New English Bible. And um, this is sort of like a supplemental translation, uh, a second after you've read your translation and you have some questions about the verse. I think if you read my translation you will go, wow, I'm not sure that's the same verse that I read before. <laughs> it's different. There's no theological language in it. Um, it's a little uh, more abrupt. Uh, one of my authors called it, ch- one of my editors called it chunky. Um, and I like that translation. Plus, I transliterate all Greek names. Um so I think that they will find it as something that will provoke them to look at their translation and say, now, how does how does the NIV translate this? 
And then when they're doing that, I feel like my job is done. I've got them thinking about the text more carefully. I got two wonderful letters today from readers who said that very thing. So that's lovely. And uh, as you were going through it, no doubt things struck you afresh, I guess. Um, I mean, for instance, I, one of the things that was really interesting to me has been interesting to me my whole life, not most of my life, academic life, is that the grammar of Matthew and Mark is not the same as Luke, is not the same as John, is not the same as Paul, not the same as Hebrews. And I wanted to see if I could map that into English. It's not so simple. At one point, I thought it was easier than it is. But um, so I I really found that to be a big challenge, and it was a lot of fun, is to try to to translate in such a way that people would say, well, Luke just feels smarter than Matthew and Mark. And I would say, okay. yes, he is. I often tell my students that this is a a Midwestern joke, so it might not be, might not work where you are. Uh, that Mark is from Indiana, that Matthew is from Illinois, and that Luke went to an Ivy League school. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> that just about works. I, I, I get yeah, that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Oxford. He went yeah. to Oxford. Oxford or Cambridge, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, so um, obviously you, you you're you're training uh, pastors. People are coming to um to to your seminary um and i'm just wondering that the extent to which your every scholar is trying to influence their students in in some way or other are there some prevailing cultural approaches to scripture and understanding that you're seeking to challenge in the way that you lecture and speak yeah andy this is a good question i i this is one of the themes that seems to come up in my classes frequently and of course, we never know if it's because the teachers brings it up all the time or if the students do, but I provoke this question. I tell my students that one of the biggest mistakes they can make as pastors is to read the Bible only for sermons and for teaching times. And I say, you you need to carve out of your life time to read the Bible and just read it and don't study it just listen to it, um, watch it, and over time, this sort of discipline will begin to impact you in ways you're you're not familiar. I mean, for instance, I when I tell my students that I, I you know, I've had the habit of reading two to four chapters of John Goldingay's Old Testament translation for three years, they were stunned. Like, where do you get the time for that? And I'm sitting there thinking really? Isn't this what we're supposed to be doing? Uh, and, you know, I, I I recognize that my life is Bible reading. That's what I do. Um, so I'm kind of a cheater about this sort of thing. But I, I really think that's one of the, the big things that I think I can encourage them to, to do, just to read the Bible, to listen to it, to become familiar with it, not to analyze it, not to use it, but to let it uh, speak to them. On both sides of the Atlantic, uh, Scott, uh, local churches are seeking to put in place strategies to reach the last, build up God's people. And, and key to this will be their understanding of what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. 
you've written a whole book on this topic, Kingdom Conspiracy, uh, where you're critical of some readings of that. And I just thought it might be useful to hear how you think local churches should understand that and adopt appropriate strategies. Well, the first thing I would say is that um, the evangelical church has not done very well with with the word king with the expression kingdom of god um i grew up in a tradition that never heard about the kingdom of god i remember in college on a mission trip with someone who used the word kingdom of god all the time and i i thought he was talking about the millennium that's the only thing that i knew about kingdom <laughs> yes. of god so here we have the favorite expression of our lord in matthew mark and luke and we have generations who don't understand what it means so i think i think i would say first of all let's let's get back to the gospels and read this and try to figure out what this means and then uh be fair with it and you know i, I believe that we've even those who've talked about the kingdom of god have sort of colonized it into the doctrine of salvation the the word kingdom will always have to do with a king which is God in the Old Testament, which is Jesus in the New Testament. And this king will rule, but this king's rule is based upon redemption or liberation from Egypt, redemption through the cross that leads to lordship or governorship. So that's the kind of reign we're talking about, a saving ruling uh, king who... Um, creates a people, Israel, the church, who are called to live according to the law of that king, the teachings of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, in a place. I mean, in the Old Testament, there is no such thing as a kingdom without territory. And in the first century, the word basileia, the Greek word, I'm reading Josephus right now in the Jewish war. He uses this term not for... Uh, a dynamic reign that is characteristic of so many people, but it's always a territory. It's a place. It's got boundaries, or at least it's got uh, debated boundaries. And I, I think those are the themes that we need to be talking about. And I think it gives a lot of fresh insight when we start talking about kingdom and Jesus. But I, I think the attempt to reach this generation will do best if we spend more time talking about Jesus and his vision for us, and less about the church, and less about how big our church is, less about our fantastic music, and just more and more about Jesus, so that people can know that they can gather with these believers wherever they are, and they're going to hear words about Jesus who will speak words of redemption and comfort and challenge to them. So, Well, no, that, that segues very nicely, Scott. Thank you. Into my next question, because you're in the um obviously in the, in the state of illinois uh, most many will know um of of willow creek uh, community church um and many uk churches have been influenced by uh, willow creek through the willow creek association now the global leadership network and you you wrote a series of articles for christianity today on willow creek and it's uh, sadly it's demise some of the challenges it faced without going into the personal side i'm just wondering if you're you can reflect with us on on what they got right and and maybe what what didn't go so well. 
Well, that's a big one. That's a big question. <laughs> um, you know, Willow's what, 40 years old or something like that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a completely different institution or church today than it was uh, in its heyday. But one of the, and I'm hesitant always because we have spent so much time with victims. Uh, I'm hesitant to talk about the good of Willow Creek because it, it rewounds some of these victims. But okay. Willow Creek led many people to Christ and paved the way for women in leadership, but also had an amazing capacity to combine gospel, let's say, typical evangelism. Bill Hybels, in his heyday, was a very traditional evangelist with the gospel that he preached. But they combined that with concern for the poor and racism. So they had a social dimension to it that is reminds me of Wesleyanism. In, in its best days. So, um, but unfortunately, there was there was a culture of success, a culture of masculinity, masculinism, a culture of uh, we're too big to be criticized. And frankly, there was way too much uh, sexualized culture at that church. And eventually, toxicity, toxicity, toxicities like this come back to catch you. And they all came crumbling down when, when the Chicago Tribune, which is a major newspaper in the United States, wrote a definitive article about the toxicities at Willow Creek under Bill Hybels, and that he had uh, he was being alleged to have relationships with uh, a number of women. And and it in a sense it ruined the church, not not the people. A lot of good people there, still there. Uh, but when when people talk about Willow Creek today, they they remember this story rather than the stories before. And it it serves as an amazing, stunning, shocking reminder that. Uh, we need to keep our life in order and our house in order, or these sorts of things can happen to us as well. Well, thank you for reflecting, um, you know, so so thoughtfully. And as you say, um, without going to the ins and outs, there are victims um, amidst it all, um, people hurting and um, seeking to recover. So, yeah, um, Scott, you you host um, uh, the, the Jesus Creed, and um, you've got the Kingdom Roots podcast. Um, I'm just wondering if if there are particular writers and thinkers on Christian leadership that you particularly value and you'd want to commend to, to the listeners to this show. You know, I um, I have a Substack now, <laughs> so I, I, I'm not using my my blog so much at the Jesus Creed. Okay. In fact, I don't even know if that still exists at Christianity Today. I think it does. Um, on leadership, you know. I think uh, because I have taught the Gospels and Jesus, historical Jesus stuff, my so much of my career, I like to talk about followership. I think the best leaders are followers of Jesus and that they, in a sense, pull people along with them. They, uh, they call people to walk with them as they follow Jesus. As Paul says, 
1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think that um, that's something uh, that has been helpful to me. Dallas Willard, um, I think, can provide some really good things. I'm My favorite writer in Christian theology is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, right. I've been yes. reading. I've been reading him since 1973, so 50 <laughs> well, years of reading Bonhoeffer. And I love I I love to go to Bonhoeffer. I can read his early writings that I've read dozen times. I can read them today as if I've never read them before. They're they're still fresh and alive to me. Um I liked a little book by Ruth Tucker about leadership. I thought I thought that was pretty good, but I'm not um I'm not one who reads about leadership. Uh, I want to be a follower of Jesus and let that morph or convert into leadership as a form of leadership. Uh, and could you, would you say that the, the gospels in a sense, although they're obviously magnifying and focusing on Jesus, have a leadership manual dimension for the disciple? In other words, Jesus is is calling these people to to follow him, but he's also giving the teaching and and yeah. his followers would become leaders and yeah as as followers of Jesus we're be being asked to be of an influence for him yeah i i would say so yes in fact um a friend of mine mark allen powell has a book what would what do they hear and he makes this stunning out conclusion that uh, when pastors read the gospels they identify with jesus when lay people read the Gospels or hear the Gospel being read, they identify with the characters. Yeah. And I think uh, if we could learn to identify with the characters in the Gospels, we will learn from Jesus, in a sense, lessons about leadership, not in a simplistic way. You know, he called 12, we need to have 12, that sort of <laughs> simplistic, silly thing. Um, but we encounter him, and in the encounter with Jesus, we we learn the dynamic of what God wants of us that we can pass on to other people and what God wants of them as well. I mean, even in the sense that uh, he didn't call everybody to do the same thing. And we, uh, it, it's really kind of stunning. He doesn't tell two people to do the same thing other than Peter and Peter and Andrew, James and John at the beginning, you know, they said to follow me, but, their following was different than, say, Matthew's, and their following was different than uh, these this group of people and the women who are connected to Jesus in Luke chapter 8. All these sorts of things I think we can learn from uh, and, and gain things about leadership. Well, you've been very humble and not mentioned any of your own books. Um, uh, if, if you were to select one of yours and you, you think if, if a UK leader wanted to grasp something that could be valuable to them, which, which of your books would you... Uh would you recommend? Well, you mentioned Jesus Creed, you know, and I, I deeply appreciate that. That book is almost 20 years old. It's kind of stunning to me because that book changed my life in two ways, personally and uh, professionally. I became a speaker because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and the King Jesus Gospel, I think. Um, but I'm uh, Andy, I'm I'm always partial to the last book I wrote. So, <laughs> so I like I like the Second Testament. The right Second now. Testament, with it, which brings <laughs> us wonderfully full circle. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Scott, so. it's been it's been a thrill to chat with you. Sadly, time times defeated us in terms of um, you know the amount of space we have for, <laughs> yeah, for this yeah. radio show. But um, 
you know, but thrilling, thrilling to chat with you. Um, how can people get a copy of the Second Testament? Well, it's available on a digital, you know, all the digital, what are like Amazon, I don't, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever places people buy books electronically or digitally. And and I think um, bookstores are going to be having it in in the United Kingdom before too long. Uh, I know I have a friend who she wrote me and, and they don't have copies yet. So uh, they're coming. It's coming. By the so by the time we broadcast this, I'm sure it'll be out and out and about. Yeah. So yeah, fabulous. Well, well, Scott, it's a thrill to chat with you. Thank you for sparing your time. And uh, uh, and you you got another book in in on on uh, the, the blocks ready for next uh, next well, phase of. You know, my daughter and I wrote a book called The Church Called Tove, and we have a second book coming out three years later uh, in September called Pivot. It's about helping churches transform from toxic cultures into tove or goodness cultures. Fabulous. Well, we'll look, we'll look forward to that one as well. Okay, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. That was my conversation with Scott McKnight the author of The Second Testament, a translation of the New Testament. And he mentioned the Jesus Creed, which, as he said, launched him into being a popular author nearly 20 years ago. I was interested in the way he stressed the importance of leaders being followers. We're to call others to join with us in following Jesus. We're not leaders in that sense. He is the leader, and we are under shepherds of him. Whether our own influence being in a local church, in a charity, or in the non-believing world context. And I was glad that he agreed with me that in many ways the Gospels are our our leadership manual, as Jesus calls us to teach others uh, what he has taught his followers. And so as we learn and embody what Jesus has been teaching, we have something. So this is Andy Peck thanking you for your company and looking forward to you joining us once again very soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.